Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good afternoon, listeners. Well, it's afternoon for me. It is for you whenever you're listening, so good morning, good afternoon, good evening. What's been on my mind lately is the immune system. Now, not just the bodily immune system, but that will work very well as an analogy for what I'm thinking about. If your physical immune system is hit by some sort of foreign object, be it an allergen or a virus or a bacterium, then there's going to be various uh, very unpleasant symptoms as a result of that. Or if you ingest something that your body thinks is bad, or if it is actually bad, uh, there's going to be a set of system symptoms somewhat similar sometimes to a virus and others somewhat different. I myself had an allergy issue due to an overgrowth of certain things in my gut that did not belong, or did not belong in that number, and it took changing my diet and uh, going through some other things to get rid of it. It's definitely worth the effort and the time to find the source of certain issues. Anyways, the reason why I'm bringing this up, though, is that the spiritual or soul life, I think, also has its own sort of immune system, and it has its own sort of foreign objects, shall we say, that can invade. Now, the philosopher that I follow currently, again, named Molyneux, uh, he calls the body's, uh, the, sorry, the soul's immune system anger. I think that's a pretty darn good answer. But what I've been thinking about lately is that there's more than just anger that is a response of the body to something foreign being in it. Now, what could those foreign things be? And here's where things get a little interesting. See, what I've been pondering is that it is possible for more than one will to be operating in a single body. Now that sounds very strange, but you'll note that one of my favorite topics, something that I bring up quite a bit, is abuse and manipulation. Now what is abuse and manipulation fundamentally? It is the attempt to control the will of another person. Think about it. If you are, have been abused, or if you abuse another person, what you, are trying, what you are trying to do is sublimate them to you. You are trying to prevent them from doing things that you don't like. You are trying to hammer into them some idea of moral values or ethical norms. If you're trying to manipulate them, what are you trying to do? You're trying to get them to quote-unquote choose quote-unquote for themselves something that you in fact want for them to do but you're not going to ask for it directly now there's many different versions of act asking directly you can ask in action for example a car salesman offers you some a particular vehicle and you simply say mm, no i'm not really interested i'm going to go over here and then that man uh starts narrowing or sorry um giving you different deals he starts haggling down uh, and offering you this and that and so on. Now, maybe you actually wanted him to do that in the first place. Did you manipulate him? No. You did exactly that which was probably honest to a degree, which is to simply say, I didn't want this deal. 
And he, as a result, did maybe exactly what you wanted him to do, maybe not what you wanted him to do. But in either case, you're not going to take the deal. You're being perfectly honest. But anyways, of course, the best way, the most honorable way, the most trusting way to not manipulate, to be direct, is to be direct, to say exactly what you feel, to say exactly what you want. But many of us know that for us to say exactly what we want, exactly what we feel, especially as children, but then if this happens as children, it follows us into adulthood, particularly with our parents, that very often is met with what? Opposition. What kind of oppositions do we get? Abuse and manipulation. If our perspective, our ideas, our feelings, our desires are not liked by people who are willing to use force, willing to use abuse, willing to use manipulation, if that interaction occurs, then we're going to essentially have our preferences, our wills, our feelings stomped upon. In other words, we're not allowed to have them. Now, of course, this doesn't, as I've often mentioned, it doesn't only occur within the family unit. It's just one of the first places where, if it's going to occur at all, it's going to occur there. It might be your sibling. It might be your aunt or uncle. It might be your teacher. Now, to be quite precise, if your parents are not willing to use these kinds of techniques, these kinds of strategies, if you will, then it's less likely that you're going to endure it happening with anybody else. In fact, if you have parents that are not willing to do this at all, if they are only willing to do quite the opposite and never manipulate you, never abuse you, if you are attempt if somebody else attempts to abuse you or manipulate you, then they're going the, your parents will step in and stop it if they know it's happening. This happened once with me. I one time had a quote-unquote friend and somewhat co-worker change jobs, and then he invited me into his uh, financial independence um, business, if you will, not as a business partner, but as a, quote, customer. And I don't know just how disingenuous this whole deal was, but on first look from my mother, she said, don't you dare. <laughs> you have to, you're going to call him up. And you're going to tell him no. Now, could she be completely confident that this was a cheaty idea, that this was not above board? Uh, not entirely. She couldn't have known that 100%. But she, being much older than me and experienced in these areas in ways that I certainly could not have hoped to be experienced, mm, sensed a rat in the room. And she responded with responded to it with vehemence and directness. And though I did not want to be confrontational, my family is not particularly confrontational at all, she was willing to push very hard to get me to confront and say, no, I'm not going forward, forward with this, sign me off. Anyways, it's just one simple example of this sort of thing taking place. My parents, they're for all their flaws, have not been willing to manipulate or abuse. And following with that standard, they have not allowed their children to be manipulated or abused as much as they have been able to. Anyhow, <clears throat> if, on the other hand, 
your parents are willing to manipulate and abuse, then it is very likely you're going to be susceptible to that around you as well, from teachers, from elders, from friends, from siblings, whatever. Why? Because you're comfortable with it. If you have chosen to believe that this is normal, which is a normal thing to do psychologically, though it may not be correct rationally, then you're going to be more willing to accept it from the people around you. Manipulation and abuse is, in fact, what you think is normal. So, what happens as a result of that? See, people like to try to critique the idea of God ruling a person's life in just this way, that it's manipulative, that God is abusing us, that God is controlling us and not allowing us to have wills of our own. And I'll get into those arguments in a bit. And it's interesting to me how very often those same people don't seem to function very well in their lives. And these same people either have been abused or are abusing and manipulating other people or both, often both. Anyway, but I'll get into the reasons as to why I suspect that to be the case, even if I don't see any direct evidence of it. My point is people tend to project this onto God when in fact it is going on in their own lives, but I'll get into those arguments. As I started out, what is, I think that there is a soul or spiritual, probably both, immune system in the body that rejects the foreign objects. If you have been manipulated and abused, how are you functioning on a day-to-day -day basis? When you are doing something that is outside of your comfort zone, why is it outside of your comfort zone? If, for example, you have been raised up in a family where any time you were to say what your preferences really are or what your feelings really are, you were stomped down and you were prevented from being allowed to say what you really wanted to say, what happens if you haven't dealt with that trauma when you, as an adult with somebody else who has no part in your family nor relationship, what happens when you start wanting to say what your preference is, what your choice is, what your opinion is? Don't you have that little check inside you that goes, oh no, nope, nope, can't, can't do that, mm -mm, nope. Why? Because, because I'm going to be disliked. Whatever I say is going to be rejected. Nope, can't, mm -mm, nope. Is that not inside of you? Now, you may think, I can't relate to this. I absolutely can relate to this. I just said it a moment ago. What is one of the flaws of my family? Anti-confrontation. They are very non-confrontational. They do not like to say things flat out. So what has happened to me as an adult when I have wanted to confront, when I have wanted to be direct, even a bit harsh? I really, really, really don't want to. Why? Because if anyone in my family brought up confrontation, it became an anxiety fest very, very quickly. Nobody wanted to talk about these things. Very few members of my family had any concept of how to deal with their own emotions when confrontation was brought up. What were those emotions? Sadness, anger, disappointment, offense. None of us really knew how to deal with that, so I've had to learn the hard way how to do it as an adult. But in addition to that, I have had to learn how to deal with my own anxieties when wanting to bring up something difficult. 
And it makes more sense to me now, looking back, on why I've wanted to establish so many things, groups, even this podcast, to talk about things that are challenging, because I wasn't allowed to as a child. Now, I don't greatly fault my family for that. I fault them for that, don't get me wrong. But I understand it. I think it's a fairly normal thing. But it's not right. Anyway, just pointing out how I relate. Whatever it is that was stamped down in you as a child, as an adult, for you to deal with going into that area is not a uncomfortable zone simply because it is natural to you. It's an area of discomfort because that was shoved into you as a child. It doesn't necessarily, again, have to be your family, but it was most likely your family. So, what is really happening when you want to bring these things up? If it is not something that is innate to you to be uncomfortable with these things, And by the way, this is a BS explanation that I've heard a lot of times growing up. Oh, it's just something, uh, my personality, it's basically in my DNA. I I just, I don't like talking about this stuff. I'm too emotional, I'm too unstable. I love emotional people, and I have found some of them to be the most willing to face confrontation. Emotionality and confrontation are not mutually exclusive. Emotion is a human attribute, and some people are more expressive, and some people are less expressive with their emotions. But we all feel them, feel them deeply. The lack of desire to express emotions is sometimes a, a sign of trauma, a sign of manipulation and abuse. We weren't allowed to emote. So what is really happening? Is it, it's my genes, it's just an uncomfortable area for me. No. You were trained not to be comfortable with that. Now is that 100% of the time? I'm not willing to go that far, but it's darn close as far as I've seen, as far as I have observed. What is going on in the person when they have this inner fight within them? more than one will. In other words, what you have been trained to react to, what you have been taught to be uncomfortable with, what you have been taught even to resist or maybe even fight, was that originally your desire? Was that what how you wanted to be? Did you want this inner struggle whenever you start bringing up something that you feel about or something that you prefer or something that you want? Was that native to you? Is that how you were as a child? Is that how you want to be as an adult? Probably not. What you are responding to is the will of another crammed down into your system until you lived that way. And as I've said before in this podcast, you had to live that way. Why? Because it was necessary to survive. If you didn't take in that lesson and live by it, at least as a child, you probably would have been turned out of the house, ultimately. Now I'm talking about a protracted resistance, right? But you didn't have any power as a child. You had to take these things in. 
So as an adult, you continue to respond as if you are still in that environment. You are allowing the will of somebody else, which is in this case the will to not allow you to have your own will, to operate within you. You are still in a fight of two wills, or at least more than one. Maybe your dad and your mom and your siblings and you all quarreling with each other. What a terrible way to live. Now, I've again, I'm constantly reeling in like a yo-yo the original point that I was bringing up. What are the signs? If the body has a sort of soul immune system or soul's immune system to these things, what is the foreign object? A different will than your own, more than one in yourself. See, some of you who are more religious are going to be recognizing that I'm almost talking about possession here. And yes, in a way I am. Personally, I haven't seen a whole lot of demonic possession going on in the world. I've, I've seen it. I've seen, for example, what I consider to be a genuine exorcism. It wasn't that dramatic, but it was notable. But, in my opinion, if you want to see the demonic inactivity in this world... Go next door. Or if it's not there, it's the next door. And start asking genuine, hard questions, curious questions to your neighbor. And what you're going to find very quickly is that you're not just talking to your neighbor. You're talking to your neighbor's parents. You're talking to your neighbor's elders. You're talking to your neighbor's influencers. Whoever it is that has had some degree of control in your neighbor's life. That, to me, is the demonic that we find every day. So, that is the foreign object. Different wills, other people's wills in operation through the fears and anxieties of another person, or of yourself, how does the body react What results from not really being allowed to express your own will individually is quite a number of things. For example, if your parents essentially stamped down on any degree of ambition and desire to advance in your life, then you're probably not going to be very capable, if you still haven't dealt with this, to have much ambition or desire to advance in your life. You might have a genuine desire to make wealth, to succeed in life, but if you haven't dealt with the will of those in you who have not desired for you to advance in your life, and you still in some degree respect them or agree with their premises, their ideas about life or whatever, you might have a genuine desire and yet you can't get beyond it. Or maybe you had parents who, in a more manipul subtly manipulative way, really just kept you down in almost every way possible. What's going to happen to such people? If, again, you haven't dealt with what they've done in you, and by the way, this does not necessitate having a relationship still with these people. It has to do with what's going on in your mind. And this is why I've been emphasizing two different wills operating in one person 
or at least more than one. If that connection is still there, if their domination, manipulation, abuse is still operating in you, in your subconscious, you're not going to actually be able to cut off this link and start behaving as if you're just you. What happens in people who are absolutely oppressed? This very often happens through, through religious talk. You're not allowed to think this way. You're not allowed to act that way, and so on and so forth, because holy writ, because God com God's commands, because you have to honor your parents, and so on and so forth. What's going to happen in lives like that, people like that, is essentially utter disablement. What symptoms couldn't manifest? How about likeliness to get sick? How about sicknesses that cannot be explained by medical science? Did you know, for example, that if you are consistently in a bad mood, it actually hampers your immune system? If you are chronically depressed, you're more likely to be sick on a regular basis. And how about things that we've talked about before, such as alcoholism or drug abuse? Very often, that is a coping mechanism. Why do you need a coping mechanism? Well, if you are being oppressed by the will of people who have abused you in the past in your everyday life and you can't get rid of them, why would you ever not feel, at least to some extent, depressed? Pushed down. Why would you not feel as if the world is trying to obliterate you? If this is inside you, how would you ever really rise? So yes, a constant sense of pains, constant sickness, constant depression, bouts of anger and rage, seemingly out of nowhere. See, what I'm getting at, and why I talked about the physical immune system at the beginning, is that the symptoms of a foreign object inside of a soul are not likely to be any less unpleasant. In fact, they're likely to be more unpleasant than the mere symptoms of a runny nose or even throwing up, as happens in the body. But one of the more confusing aspects is that very often one of the symptoms is physical sickness. But I think it's far more poignant when the sickness cannot be tracked or traced or understood by anybody. Is it just something that's going wrong inside the body? Sometimes that might kind of be the case. Like I said, it was my allergies with me that was actually the case. Oh, and by the way, the source of that was eating too much sugar. But here's a thought. Why was I allowed to eat too, so much sugar as a child? Hmm, where does that go back to? Who should have been regulating my diet or at least helping me to make good decisions in my diet when I was young? Duh, my parents. Would I call that abuse? Eh, maybe in the form of neglect. But yes, ultimately, it is actually my parents that have to answer, to some extent, for the allergies that I suffered with. Because the source was a bad diet, and I, as a child, do not have the knowledge necessary to regulate my own diet well. Anyway, the symptoms that we have should be plainly obvious. Just like a runny nose, sneezing, coughing, is in the physical body. But why don't we recognize it as such? Well, look at the world around us. If I am claiming the correct answer 
then the world around us has been very busy hiding all of the symptoms with different explanations. Why does this person keep getting sick? Well, uh, diet and um, lifestyle and uh, you know what? They ju they just need drugs. Um, they just they just need these pharmaceuticals and they'll be fine. Um, why is this person suffering with depression? Oh, uh, there's a chemical imbalance in the brain and uh, they they need this drug and so on. Why are all these topics so uncomfortable for you? Why do you keep answer or responding with anxiety and maybe even rage? Oh, um, it, it, it's my DNA. Uh, I, I, it's my personality. I just can't deal with it. You know, one of the things that I recognize about all of these answers that the world gives us is that even when implemented, if there is any kind of implementation that's possible, it never solves the problem. Don't we crave solutions to problems deep down? And all the world really tends to do is deal with symptoms, if at all. How about the person who gets anxious and angry even if any particular if some of particular topics are brought up? How do we deal with those symptoms? Just don't bring up the topic. Okay. That leaves the person with the probably a plethora of topics that they can just never talk about. This happens in marriages. How can you get to intimately know your spouse if there is a plethora of topics you can't even bring up because they're just going to get anxious and angry? Just never bringing it up as a solution? No. I should say not, because you will never be able to get to know that person in that area at all. You'll never understand why. You'll never understand them in this area. Now, if people try to program each other, try to control each other in these ways, what about God? Submit your will to God's will. People hear words like that and they blame God for being the one who wants to control us, who wants to manipulate us. Is that so? See, the word submit is a very difficult to, word to understand in modern day. Is it a word that really means subliminate, it means God wants to control? No. We find the same word in the instructions from wives to husbands. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. We have the same aversion to the word there. Does it actually mean control? Well, think about the phrasing. Submit your will to God's will. What does that imply? That you're using your freaking will. You choose to submit your will to God's will. Who is doing the willing? You are. 
you choose to submit your will. See, if you observe how God deals with people, you cannot, in my opinion, and I've thought about this a great deal, you cannot find an example where God is making people do something. God will prescribe, God will instruct, God will teach. And yes, he will be plain and obvious about what will happen to us if we don't follow his instructions. Hell, of course, is one obvious example. But then when it comes to the Israelites, their success or failure as a nation very often hinged on whether or not they listened and obeyed. And why is that? Well, there's a number of reasons, some of them having to do with going in parallel with the natural law, the natural order of the physical universe that God himself put into place. But then in addition to that, the Israelites had a covenant with God. For them to go against God was for them to go against an agreement that was made not just with their ancestors. They themselves consistently re-agreed generation to generation. I don't know about every generation. But by the way, they weren't even obliged to stay, as far as I understand it, among the Israelite people. They could separate. Some of the punishments for them doing wrong things was not death. It was being cut off from their people. If they didn't want to follow the laws, apparently they didn't have to. They just had to go find another nation to be a part of. Pretty harsh, yes. But it was a nation that had a covenant with the Lord. Anyway, God never forces people to follow his will. You take a look at all the abusive and manipulative tactics of human beings. God doesn't do any of them. He wants our obedience, yes, but he wants our obedience by choice. Does God get all offended and anxious and angry if we say something out of turn? Well, he's direct, but it doesn't get all kinds of unstable. That's what people do. Does God say, you better do this or else? No. God says, you you should do this. And by the way, if you don't, you're going to suffer consequences. But you can choose. For example, when God is done telling the Israelites all the things that will happen, if they do this, if they do that, what will happen? Because he knows they're going to do X and Y. He talks through a bunch of that stuff. What he says in the end is, I have set before you life and death. Choose life. He assumes that we are the ones that are making, making the choices. This is what a lot of the argument between determinism and free will is hinged on as far as the Christian arguments go. See, if God forces us to do anything, then abusive people are right. Abusive and manipulative people are doing exactly as God does. And, by the way, I think this is one of the sources of abusive and manipulative people among religious types. They believe this is what God does, so they emulate the same thing. I don't believe that. I don't believe there is a single example in Scripture where God uses force to get people to do a particular thing. The natural order, the 
rather automatic consequences of particular decisions are allowed to go along their course. And God does have punishments which he lays out ahead of time. And I don't know that I would even call them punishments. They are part of an agreement. If you don't do this, I'm going to do that. If you do this, I'm going to do this. He lays it out, and if they don't do it, well, he follows through on his own word. That's just honor. If the Israelites agreed to it, they agreed to the punishments also. He didn't go back on his word. He displayed honor. He displayed respect, even, for the Israelite people. The point that I'm making here is that God is not interested in controlling us. God is not interested in trying to fight our own will with his will. I'll use an illustration, one that I have brought up a number of times, or at least one time before in this podcast. In the parable of the talents, the master is an image of God, and the servants, well, are an image of us. When the master gives five talents to the one, two talents to another, and one talent to another, does he tell them what they should do? No. He just leaves. What they probably already know is how to go about doing whatever they choose to do with the talents, with the money. If they understood how to be responsible, he went away expecting them to be responsible. Again, how to live, not what to do, specifically. He didn't micromanage them. And when they made the talents increase, when they got return on investment, however it is that they worked or did whatever it is that they did, he rewarded them for it. Did they do exactly what he wanted them to do? He didn't tell them to do anything. He just gave them responsibility over the money. And they were. At least two of them. Look through the scripture. Does God tell us how to live? Or does he tell us what to do? Now, some of you are going to object. Oh, yes, but God told some people specifically what to do. You could take the disciples with Jesus. You could take Moses. You could take Daniel. You could take David. Sure. Those are specific instances where God did do exactly that. Absolutely right. Okay, what percentage of their lives did that take up? You ever thought about that? When Moses was told to speak to the rock and he ended up striking it instead, how much of his day was that? Did God also come in micromanaging him walking up to the rock? Did he micromanage when Moses called together the people to come around the rock because water was going to come out. Moses didn't even do what God asked in that instance, and yet water still came out. See, God wasn't even so harsh as to micromanage Moses to not give him the desired results when he didn't do exactly what God asked. Now, it is severe, yes, when you don't do things exactly as God asks. We have Moses and the rock. We have Saul and his orders to completely destroy. I can't remember the people he was going to destroy, but he didn't. And he lost the kingdom for it eventually. Pretty harsh, yes. 
But those are, again, one of those areas where we should be very fearful, be very specific, and very particular. So I repeat myself, because God has given specific instructions. What about the rest of the day, the rest of their lives, every single day? Did God micromanage everything? Of course not. They had the law. They had God, God's instructions about how. How do you live? What is responsible? How do you love? What is God's example? That's how they were expected to go day to day to day to day. And then when God comes in and says specifically do this and that, then yes, you, stand, you should stand to attention. If you have already agreed to have a relationship with the God of the universe, if he comes in and says, hey, do this and that, you freaking do it and you listen to the details. If you're in the military, you should understand that. If you've ever had a king over you, you would understand that. Now, let me use one more possible contention to this whole idea that God doesn't want to control our wills. Paul talks about being slaves of God. Do you know what it was actually like to be a slave back then? Slaves, even prior to the Civil War and the undoing of slavery in the U.K., they very often were allowed to keep more of the proceeds of their gains than the average American citizen does today through taxes. You know that? Now, yes, there are examples of slaves being abused. And by the way, there's provision for that in the Israelite text, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Masters were not just allowed to treat their slaves however they wanted. But yeah, it did get pretty severe, and I think it's an advancement Absolutely that we don't have slavery. But my point is, very often, slaves were treated better than we are as citizens today. They were treated well by their masters. They were allowed to keep more of their money than we do today. What a slave was back then was more often a submissive position. Remember that term? Rather than absolute control and domination by their masters. If masters treated their slaves poorly, there was probably social repercussions for that as well. If the rest of the community treated their community treated their slaves well, they were probably not looked very much well upon if they treated their slaves poorly. Servants and slaves in an ideal situation were submissive, not controlled by their masters. There was a difference between good masters and abusive masters. Paul writes about it in the, New, in the New Testament. There was still a differentiation even there. So when Paul is talking about being slaves of God, you think he was thinking about of abusive masters? I would venture to guess not. But modern day people think there's no exception to that rule, that if you're a slave, you're always abused. Nope. Not necessarily. Might have been a great deal more tempting. Just as it was tempting in the days of Jesus for people to be abusive to their wives. Why? Because women had so much less power back then. They didn't even have the right or the freedom to get as well educated as men. 
So yeah, a lot more tempting to be abusive. When you have power of that sort over another human being, yeah, it's tempting. Doesn't mean everybody took the temptation, though. Doesn't mean everybody caved to it. So when Paul says we're to be slaves of God, or servants of God, both are used, by the way, is he thinking of subjugation, of absolute sublimation, or is he thinking about submission? We choose to use our wills to submit to God's will. By force? Well, obviously not. Not if we're using our own wills. We are to take our wills, so to speak, in our own hands, the same way we do every day, or at least should every day, and submit to God. So having argued through all of that, I am trying to deal with this one concern. If I have made my case decently well, or at least made the case that it might be so, that when people are dysfunctional in any of many, many various ways, it is because there is a foreign object, so to speak, a foreign will operating in the same will. The concern is going to come up if you really understand that idea and consider it. What about God? Does God do that? No. No. God wants relationship. See, what I think God wants is a great deal more like the right kind of marriage. You'll remember that God uses that analogy through the prophets themselves. He doesn't use slave. He uses wife. What is the ideal marital relationship? Where one dominates the other, where one controls the other through some sort of manipulation? By the way, the female manipulation is pretty well known, actually. It's crying. It's, oh, that makes me feel so bad. Why would you do that to me? Why would you hurt me so? By bringing up a topic of conversation. Look at it. Do you realize how manipulative that is? Women don't come from a place of strength when they're in relationship with men. They do when it comes to children and some other women. So how do they manipulate if they want to manipulate when they're dealing with men? You hurt me. It's pretty obvious when you look at it. So what I'm pointing out is husband and wife can absolutely try to manipulate and abuse each other, try to control each other's lives. Maybe it's through religion. Maybe it is through physical force. Maybe it's through emotional manipulation. But what is the right way? How does it look? When you're not doing that, well, you make your case, you ask for the other to follow you or to listen to you, you give advice maybe, you try to understand. And you say in the end, would you choose this? Would you choose that? Would you choose to change your perspective in this way? And ultimately, would you choose me? And of course, if we're talking about dating into marriage, uh, ultimately what you're saying is, would you choose me 
forever. For the rest of our lives. How does that actually look? What ideally should that be? So many of us have no examples of what that really should look like. But you need to understand this primary crux. The difference between somebody who is treating you right and somebody who is treating you wrong is, will they allow you to make your own decisions even if they don't like it? When God told the Israelite people, I have given, I have placed before you life and death, choose life. Was he leaving the option of choosing death open? Well, duh, yeah. If he's only petitioning us, petitioning the Israelites in this case, then obviously they still have the option of choosing death. But pretty plainly, that's a bad choice. Did God stop them? No. There are consequences? Yes. Which is probably why he's telling them, please choose life. But they're allowed to. That is the first sign of somebody who's not out to control you. And if you don't have foreign wills trying to get you to do something else, be it Satan, be it a human being, how likely is it that depression is going to grip you day to day? How likely is it that you're going to be sick on a regular basis? How likely is it that you won't be able to have ambition? Now, I'm not saying it's just, oh, immediately, the very day that you finally got this other will out of your system, it'll be perfectly fine. And by the way, the lessons learned by the people who tried to control you will still be there, and that is actually valuable. For example, if you have the right relationship, with their ghost in your head, if you want to call it that, then you're going to know very well how to avoid those kinds of people. Because you have a good deal of experience with it. It's not bad to have bad experiences if you learn how to absorb that information. Try to avoid it, you're traveling blind. Absorb it and understand what people like that look like, and you can avoid it in the future. The scripture says, it is for freedom you have been set free. I mentioned it in my last episode. And yet so many people think that what is really meant by God's wanting to be in charge of our lives is that we're going to be his slaves. We're going to be controlled by him. We're not going to have any will of our own. It is for freedom. You've been set free, and, and that's what you think it means? As Lewis put it, he wants us to have a child's heart and an adult's head. He wants us to use our wits. Look at Jesus' parable of the shrewd manager. Look again at Jesus' parable of the talents. He wants us to understand how to live for ourselves and choose to do so. He gives us the wisdom and then leaves it to us. Not alone. He wants to have a relationship. Yes. But he doesn't interfere with our wills. He wants us to submit our wills to his will. 
In other words, to understand how it is to live in relationship with him and submit to that process. To do it with our own will. And by the way, by doing so, you live better. You live happier. You live free. He doesn't want to do what so many people do. So yes, in my opinion, if you're struggling with depression that you can't understand, if your body is constantly breaking down, you don't know why. Stop looking just at the body, at chemicals, at your brain. Those might all be helpful in their own ways, and I personally do find it helpful. But look for what other foreign things might be manipulating you, might be trying to control you. And start confronting that. Our bodies have good immune systems. They show signs when things are not the way they're supposed to be. So start thinking about it. Look for what is there that doesn't belong there. If there is any will inside you except your own, even when it comes to God, something's wrong. God wouldn't do that in the first place. See, a lot of us, this will be my last thought, a lot of us think that all this religiosity, all of this mechanical, robot-like discipline, uh, whatever we want to call it, it's not actually discipline. It's obligation. It's not sure exactly what to call it. But in religious people's lives is a sign that God is there and that God is in control of their lives or something like that. No, more than likely... It's what their parents and their church taught them was the way to be a Christian. Whose will are they really following? Is it religion according to the scriptures? Or is it religion according to human tradition? Human tradition, not just passed to them by the church, but probably by their own parents. this mechanical following of the letter of scripture and so on. Do you remember God, sorry, Jesus argued against that in the Pharisees. He didn't want that sort of mechanical following of the letters of the law. He taught them that it was far deeper than that. And far more free. The law was designed to free us, not to bind us. It is we who do that to each other. If anyone is going to tempt us to believe that the scriptures mean we're supposed to become this mechanical automaton of God, that would be Satan. And based on what I've seen on a lot of church people, he's doing a pretty good job. That's all I had today. Talk to you next time.